Good morning. Merry Christmas. Hey, I think that's uh, one of the most beautiful sounds in the world, is hearing uh, the church sing praises to Jesus. And uh, on a morning like this, it couldn't be any better. I want to open us up, uh, kind of continuing that praise. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. I just want uh, to continue praising Jesus uh, by praying. So uh, let's, let's praise him through prayer. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this incredible morning where we pause in the midst of just all kinds of things that are going on and a lot of really good things, but nothing better than this moment where we stop to reflect on the greatest gift ever given. And Father, for many of us, we come from different experiences this whole year, and as we reflect on a year, Christmas isn't always joyful, but because of Jesus, there can always be hope. We can always have hope in the midst of difficulty and pain, uh, frustration, and we can always have more to praise and more to be grateful for in the midst of a joyful season uh, of blessing. And so, God, this morning, as we open your word, as we consider Jesus, I pray that you would stir in our hearts and that we would leave here different than when we arrived. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I've got this uh, jigsaw puzzle, and I don't know about you guys, but I am not the greatest at these. I can't even get the box open. Uh, I'm not the best. Any jigsaw puzzle people? Show of hands. Some of you are pretty good at it. Okay, I'm horrible. And in my family, we've tried numerous times to do a jigsaw puzzle, and we get all the pieces out, and we spread them around, and I try to put pieces together, and I get really proud of myself when I can get like two of these pieces to connect. And I'm really excited. I'm like, man, I finally got it. I've only got 998 to go, uh, but I'm making progress here. And then my wife or one of my kids will ask me the question, hey, where does that fit into the rest of the picture? Like, how does that fit? And I don't know the answer to that question most of the time. I see two pieces that come together, they seem to fit, and I can't seem to figure out where it goes in the rest of that picture. And so what inevitably happens is I put all the pieces back in the box, and I close the box, and I go and I put it on a shelf. And then I think to myself, maybe next time, maybe the next time, we pull this thing out, I can figure out where it fits into the bigger picture. Now, before we continue, any Superman fans? Anybody want this? Merry Christmas. First, first person up here can have it. You can, I'm telling you. If you don't, i got to give it to Mike. Right, it's going to you, Mike. Here you go, man. Merry Christmas, Mike. Mike's a super guy. You see what I did there? Look, I, I think um, if we're not careful, and even when we are careful, a lot of times Christmas, this season, can feel a lot like the jigsaw puzzle feels to me. We get the lights out and we hang them on the house. Uh, we get the decorations out and we put them on the, all throughout the house and we get the ornaments out and we hang them on the tree and we light the tree with the kids and we bake all the cookies and we have all the family gatherings and we uh, wrap all of the presents and then we unwrap all of the presents and we have all this fun and we're wondering, uh, after we leave a church service and we start thinking about the Christmas story, where does this fit into the bigger picture? Why is this so significant? Why, how does this actually affect the bigger picture of my life? And each time, um, I don't know about you, but we end up taking the lights down and putting the decorations back in their boxes and taking the ornaments off the tree, and we store it all in the attic or in the garage until next year when we bring it out, and we hope that maybe this next Christmas it begins to make a little more sense. It begins to fit in the bigger picture. I get a little more fulfillment out of Christmas. I don't know about you guys, but each year I get into this Christmas season, which for a lot of you starts in July, but for normal people, it starts after Thanksgiving. 
uh, right around after Thanksgiving, and the music starts playing, and you start to get excited. I start to think, man, this Christmas is going to be just so fulfilling. It's going to be different. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait to participate in the traditions that we have. And our family has some really awesome traditions, a lot of fun things that we do. And I get so pumped and I get so excited for Christmas being just a little bit different. And then, once again, it's not quite as fulfilling as I had hoped it would be. And all the decorations go back in the box and and we just wait until next Thanksgiving because the day after Thanksgiving, we start gearing up for Christmas again, hoping this Christmas will be it. It'll be more fulfilling. And yet again, it doesn't quite fulfill the way that we hoped it would. You know how I know that? Because um, Christmas on Sunday this year, so tomorrow's the 26th, and reality will set in tomorrow. That you have 364 more days till you get to experience the joy of today. I'm sorry. You're like, Merry Christmas, you jerk. Uh, but the joy and the excitement and the family coming together and all of that that feels so good today goes back to reality tomorrow, and we long for that Christmas day, that Christmas season to come back again, hoping that it will fulfill hoping that it'll bring just a little bit more fulfillment. You see, Christmas, a lot of the times, if we're honest, it can be a time of joy for a lot of people. For other people, it's not as exciting. You see, maybe this Christmas finds you watching other people have all of their family members come together, and you got to be alone. And you're thinking, Christmas is awesome, but I'm by myself. Or Christmas is great, but this Christmas I'm missing somebody who's not here anymore. And while it it seems joyful, it seems awesome, I'm by myself. You see, maybe for you, Christmas is actually not as joyful because you have to get with your family, right? And you're thinking, man, the only thing I'm hoping this afternoon is that the cops don't get called. That would be awesome if the police don't get called this year because every time my family gets together, it's not fun and joyful. I heard one person say this, true happiness, real happiness is a very large, close-knit family who all live in separate cities, (laughs) Maybe Christmas finds you worried about your future or longing for that spouse or married to that spouse where there's friction and tension, and and maybe it finds you in trouble with the law. I, I don't know where Christmas morning finds you this year, but I do know this. The pressure put on us to put on a smiling face and to pretend like everything's okay is intense every year. Like we're not allowed to uh, have reality be reality. We're not allowed to actually experience some of the things we've experienced all year because it's Christmas and you're supposed to fake it until you make it. You're supposed to put on a smiling face and pretend like everything's okay. And a lot of times it's not always okay. Christmas isn't always fully joyful if we peel back the layers. I mean, even our songs, everything points us to just trying to make it happy. I mean, think about the songs we teach our kids. Uh, the song to Santa Claus. I don't know all the words, so you're going to have to help me. You better watch out. You better not what? You better not? I'm. Okay, let's pause real quick. You better not, you better watch out. So first of all, watch out. Chris, pay attention, watch out. You better not cry. No crying at Christmas. And you better not pout. And I'm telling you why, why? You guys know the words. Sing it. Don't act like, oh, I, I'm not sure I know it. You can sing about it. Santa in church. It's totally all right. Santa Claus is coming to town, right? Because Santa's coming, so you're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to pout. You're not allowed to experience real pain. And Santa's coming, and so put a smile on your face, right? And then it tells us a little bit about Santa. He sees you. Weirdest line of any song ever. <laughs> Why is that Okay. If that was sung about anybody else, he sees you when you're sleeping, and then he gets arrested. And, but for Santa, like we're teaching our kids, he's watching you when you sleep. You can't even sleep upset, okay? He knows when you're awake, so you better be 
good for goodness sake. So just be good because you have to be good. Put a smile on your face because you have to smile. Fake it because it's Christmas and you're not allowed to be upset. You have to be joyful. And that's not the Christmas story that I read in the Bible. You see, when I encounter the Christmas story, primarily we go to Matthew and Luke when we read our Christmas nativity story. And in that nativity story, it occupies about 31 verses in Matthew's gospel and about 74 verses in Luke's. And I have to be careful. This is like family heirloom nativity set. So if I drop it, I'm dead. Yes. (laughs) Told you. So you have all these characters that we're introduced to, the same characters each year, right? You've got Mary, you've got the baby, you've got uh, the wise men, you've got the shepherds, you've got the animals, and they're all there in this cozy scene. In fact, uh, you'll see this time of year kids are doing pageants, and, and you read poetry, and preachers preach, and there's movies, and there's just all kinds of things around this incredible nativity scene. And I'm not quite sure, honestly, this side note, that this is Joseph, because there's an animal there. I just unwrapped a dude, looked like it could be Joseph. His hand was broken, I wanted to hide it behind Mary. So, but you have Joseph... You have, and I didn't break it. <laughs> it was broken when I unwrapped it. Um, here's the scene, though. And it's an incredible scene, and it, it's a lot of fun to take in, and it's cozy, and it makes for great Hallmark cards and songs. But when you read through the gospel accounts, there's a word that comes uh, in all, both of those accounts, really in all the accounts of the birth narrative, that unite all of these stories and all these characters. It unites all of the elements of the story from the silent night to the, uh, the baby laying in the manger. It's a word that a lot of times when you're translating the translators into your New Testament, they skip this word, and for whatever reason, it doesn't always get translated right. And the word is behold. It's a simple word in your New Testament. It's behold. And when translated properly, it's, it's one of two things. It can be an encouragement in the midst of difficult times. And when you read the word behold in your Bible, it's, hey, I know you're going through a difficult time. I know things aren't good right now, but behold, there's hope. It's a, it's a showstopper word. It's stop what you're doing. Pay attention. Behold. But it can also be a challenge, a challenge for you. that You're looking at your life and you're looking at your reality from this perspective, but behold, there's something else entirely going on. And I want you to see from a different perspective. And all through the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke, this word appears, behold. And so let me ask you this. Have you ever beheld something? Have you ever had a behold type moment where it just stopped you in your tracks and it was like, wow. And it's like the rest of reality pauses because you're focused on this one element. And it encourages you and it changes your perspective on things. I mean, it's happened to me a few times. I remember vividly the first time I saw my wife on the college campus. Uh, It was from across uh, this courtyard in the campus, and she was hanging out with other people, and someone pointed her out and just said, hey, that's so-and-so's granddaughter. And I was like, whoa, wow. And I beheld her beauty, and it stopped me in my tracks, and it changed my perspective on things. I remember each time that the doctors handed me one of my children, and I beheld how incredible that was, and it just stopped me in the moment. It was such an encouragement, and it was such a perspective changer. I know I goof around a lot about this from our stage, but um, I'm from Florida, and every time I go home and I stand on the beach and I feel the sand between my toes and I look at the ocean, I have a behold-type moment on the greatness and the bigness and the power of our God. I'm sure if I were to sit with you um, and have a cup of coffee and just ask you about different times in your life when you've had that behold-type moment, you could bring it to life. You could tell me about it. 
And the beauty of that word in the Christmas story is that over and over and over again, the writers of the Christmas story want us to stop. Stop. Pay attention. This truth can be an encouragement and a challenge for you to lift you up, forces you to look at the heavens and take in the greatness of our God. Over and over and over again, they say it. Now, um, I want to track with you just a few times through Luke and through Matthew where you see this word. So the scriptures are going to appear on the screen. I just want you to pay attention and see, is this an encouragement? Is this a challenge? Is this a perspective changer? And think about how this affects the Christmas story. When it comes to Mary, there's a few times. See, when Mary was told that she was going to give birth to God's son in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, it says, Behold, behold, after she experiences the truth that I'm going to give birth to this child, behold, I am the Lord's servant. This is a game changer. Luke 1, a few days later, Mary hurries and she goes to uh, the home of her cousin, Elizabeth, and um, she goes in to see Elizabeth and Zechariah, and the angel told her, hey, your cousin's even pregnant, and now uh, it'll affirm that truth that, hey, you're pregnant, she's pregnant. When she walks in, the baby jumps in Elizabeth's womb. The baby leaps, and it's like the baby over and over again. So she says, behold, this is what Elizabeth says, behold, stop what you're doing, Mary. This is so, this is affirming this truth, behold. When you came in and greeted me, the baby in my womb leapt for joy instantly when he heard your voice because he knew that you're carrying Jesus, the Messiah, and the baby jumps and he did three cartwheels and I've got heartburn and I'm telling you right now, this baby, this is true. Behold this moment. Behold. Then in Luke 1:48, after experiencing all that time with Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary exclaims this truth. Behold, because of this, now generation after generation will call me blessed. But you got Joseph, the other, one of the other characters in here, and here's his experience with this. When he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he wants to divorce her because he's not understanding, hey, this girl that I'm engaged to be married to, she's pregnant. That's not cool. That doesn't work out. And so I'm going to divorce her. And behold, this is what Matthew tells us in chapter 1, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It's like, behold, Joseph, you're seeing reality this way. You're making decisions about your reality this way. But behold, there's a different truth going on here that you need to see. And told him not to be afraid. In the same dream, chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin will conceive a child. Behold, this truth, Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and he will be blessed, and he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, the whole title of this sermon series that we're in. Then my favorite one is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, and on the night of this great birth, these shepherds that are in the, our cozy nativity scene, they're in there, and they're scared and fearful, and an angel comes to them, and he says, Behold, let me change your entire reality with this truth. I bring you good news of great joy that is for everyone. That the Messiah has come. Behold. It's a fascinating word. It's a, it's a Christmas word. It's my favorite word to think about during the Christmas season. Behold. This incredible moment that we come together and celebrate, and we've added a lot to it. Behold. Carries an incredible amount of hope and power in your lives and can change things for you each Christmas. Behold. Now, while I can read through it in Matthew and Luke's gospel, my favorite, my favorite gospel to turn to for the Christmas story is John's gospel. Right? And it tells me a truth about the Christmas story in the beginning of his gospel. And while he doesn't lay out the nativity scene in his gospel, he does tell the Christmas story. But he does start in his gospel. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, this is what John the Apostle writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you're thinking, Rob, that's not going to make a Hallmark card. That doesn't create the nativity scene for me. And you'd be right. 
But what John does at the beginning of his gospel sets the tone for the Christmas story in such a powerful way, and here's why. Because John is telling us the Christmas story started way before the birth narrative. You see, over and over and over again in my life, I've always considered the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, like it was God's plan B. Like somehow something went wrong in the world, and sin destroyed everything, and God's like, oh no, sin entered the picture. I better fix it, so I'm going to send my son. And we've just considered Christmas God's plan B. But John reminds us, no, Christmas is not God's plan B. Stop treating Christmas like it's God's plan B, because Christmas was always God's plan A. Always. And he tells us in the beginning, like before creation, before it all started, Jesus was there. That word, word, in your Bible, in John 1.1, is logos, and it means, it, it points to Jesus. And so in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. Meaning, the whole time God had planned to send Jesus, before creation ever started, the Christmas story was a part of God's plan. It was a big part of his plan, and why? Because something powerful happened on that night. We sing really great songs, one of them being Silent Night, but I'm convinced after reading John's nativity that maybe it was a silent night, but behind the scenes it was not so silent a night. And so when we get to John's actual nativity scene, it's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Revelation, chapter 12. And John begins to lay out the nativity scene. But let me give you a little bit of background while you're, you're getting to Revelation 12. John is late in his 90s when he writes the book of Revelation. He's an old man. He lived in an area of the world called Asia Minor at the time. If you were looking at a map today, it would be modern-day Turkey. Now, because of the power of his ministry, uh, the government wanted to exile him. And so they sent him to an island off the coast called Patmos. And so he finds himself on this island as an old man. And they're hoping he just lives out his days and he dies. But while on that island, he's visited by the Lord Jesus in a vision. And Jesus gives him this incredible vision. And he writes down what he experienced in that vision. And we have it now as the book of Revelation. Now, we can't get into all the details of the vision uh, for the sake of time today. But let me give you a couple just things to keep in mind. The book of Revelation is not a fortune-telling, future-predicting book. It absolutely promises us that Jesus is coming back. But it does not give us a remedy to figure out when. It just doesn't. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to affect the here and now. And what I mean by that is this. That John gives us his revelation so it will change our lives right now. John gives us his revelation so that we might behold. That as we're living our lives, we might stop. Behold, because of this reality, because of these truths, change the way you're living right here and right now today. And so as we get to the middle of that book in chapter 12, right in the middle of the book, so appropriately placed, because Jesus, right in the middle of the most important period in history, Jesus arrives and he tells his nativity scene. And we're going to start in chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So our first character he starts out, he doesn't have a lot of these characters. They're not a part of John's nativity scene. As a matter of fact, Joseph didn't even make the cut. Broken hand and all. Poor guy. You simply have the woman when we start out. It says she's a sign appeared in heaven. So she's a sign. What that means is this character points to something beyond themselves. That's all it means. And so when you have a sign... It points to something beyond itself. And so the two things to keep in mind would be one. Uh, what's the first thing? Who does this woman represent? Begins with an M, ends in Airy. <laughs> Got it. You guys are on it this morning. Merry Christmas. It's Mary. 
It points to Mary. It points also to the church because eventually she flees and she's persecuted by the enemy and ultimately delivered. And you read that in chapter 12, but, but Mary is present in this picture. And so this nativity scene starts out with Mary and she's experiencing the agony of giving birth. And so there's a lot of anticipation coming to this one moment. And so much anticipation that as we usher in our second character, you can see there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of um, anxiety going on in the scene. And here's our second character beginning in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, there's our word, behold. This is important. This should change the way you view reality. A red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on its head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might, when she bore her son or her child, he might devour it. So behold, he brings on this new character, this dragon. And the dragon comes on the scene, and the dragon's goal is just to wait for her to give birth because he wants to completely destroy the plans of God. The plans that John told us started before the creation of the world. God's ultimate plan to send his son, and the enemy wants to destroy it and end it right here. And he says, behold, on that night, that silent night, it was not so silent. There were screams of agony of giving birth, and this dragon came to destroy and end the plans of God that started before creation what John told us. This was God's plan A, his ultimate plan, and the enemy came to destroy it and, and to end it. Now, doesn't make for a great Hallmark card, does it? I mean, kids aren't doing pageants and plays around this nativity scene. I mean, what kid would want to, bad question, every kid would want to dress up like the dragon, but, but what nativity scene Includes the dragon. What play, what song, what poetry? Doesn't, it's not there, but he was real, and he was there. And though we might not want to admit that he's real, if we're honest, as scary as he is, as not, like, unsentimental as this scene is, as, as damaging as this scene can be, as scary as it can be, as frightening, and it can create all kinds of worry and fear in us, if we're honest, though, if we pause for a minute, we're honest, we would admit, hey, yeah, the dragon's there. He's real. The enemy's real, and Christmas, he can be real too. doesn't always feel perfect, and he can manifest himself in all kinds of ways. I've been on the phone this week three different times with people battling severe cases of anxiety and depression, close friends of mine, just fearful and worried, and, and the enemy's real. And for many of you, uh, the enemy's real because during this season of the year, somebody's not there for you, and the enemy wants to remind you of how bad you missed that person. He wants to remind you that Christmas can never be good again because they're not here. And for many of you, the enemy, the dragon, what he wants to do at Christmas for you this year is he wants to remind you of that sin struggle that you've had that you just can't seem to overcome. And yeah, you can fake it for two days, but on Monday, that sin struggle is coming back and it's going to keep eating at you and you're going to battle that. And you're not worthy and you're not good and you're not valuable because of that sin that you're battling in your life. And for many of you, the enemy wants to remind you of just how dysfunctional and painful your family and your past has been. He wants to remind you of how painful your marriage can be. He wants to remind you of anything that he can to devour God's plans of bringing you hope on Christmas. The enemy's real. And we can sing all the songs and we can have all the plays and we can eat all the cookies and open all the presents that we want, but we can't ignore. He's real. And he's present. And his goal is to destroy and to devour. And I don't know about you, but on Christmas morning when I read this, I'm so glad that the story doesn't end with the dragon. I'm so grateful for the next verses. Verse 5. In the midst of all of this great tension, verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, 
one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was then caught up to God and to his throne. So he goes right from birth to ascension immediately. He tells the whole gospel story in a verse. (laughs) And it's powerful. Why? Because no matter how hard the dragon tried, he could not stop the plans of God. No matter how much he wanted to devour and defeat and destroy and to remove hope. No matter how much he wants to remind us that sometime in 2017 we're going to get that phone call. We're going to get that bad news. We're going to struggle with that sin. No matter how much he wants to put that in front of us, he cannot stop the plan of God to provide hope and peace to the world through his son, Jesus. And the one who grew up to rule with a rod of iron, that's a shepherd. Jesus is saying this, I just want to shepherd you. I just want to bring you in and offer you hope and comfort and peace and joy because of my birth. See, this was God's plan A from the very beginning. And while Christmas is difficult and, it, and we can struggle with it and, and we can have a hard time, we have to cling to the hope that John then describes down in verse 10. Scoot down to verse 10 in chapter 12. He says, because of this birth and because of the perfect life that Jesus lived and because he was crucified and died for us and then he defeated death and he, was resur- and, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's preparing a place and one day he's coming back for us. Because of all of that truth, We can have this incredible hope in the midst of the dragon being very real in our lives. And this is why. It says, I heard a a loud voice from heaven saying, Now, because of Jesus, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The enemy is real and he's an accuser and he wants things to be horrible. But verse 11, and they conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, because of that, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil, the enemy, has come down to you with great wrath. And why? Because he knows that his time is short. Jesus was born no matter how hard the enemy tried to prevent it. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live for ourselves. The perfect, sinless life. Jesus died the death that we couldn't die for ourselves. And Jesus defeated death, and he resurrected from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because of that, Satan loses. No matter how real he feels in your life right now, he loses. His time is short, which means your time of suffering is short. The pain that we experience in this life is short. The agony that we experience, the frustration, the anxiety, all the different battles with sin that we're experiencing in this life, if we are in Christ covered by his blood, then you are a conqueror. And what that means is your suffering is short compared to the eternity of joy and hope that you will experience because of Jesus. Jesus brings hope. He makes you a conqueror. He picks you back up when you fall down and and you feel like you are unvaluable, that you're, you're not valuable at all, you're not worthy, that you have nothing to offer. Jesus says, but I do. But I do. Came across this fascinating uh, interview this week, and in the interview, um, the, this guy had done some incredible things for God, but he just felt horrible. And so excuse my language, I'm just going to quote it. Um, he's looking at this guy who's mentoring him, this incredible spiritual mentor, and he goes, man, when it comes to just doing things for Jesus, I, mean, I just, and there's hundreds of people that are there because of this guy, but he just feels so unworthy. The enemy, the dragon was real in his life, and he just says, oh, man, I just, I, I just really, I stink at all this. I stink at doing anything for Jesus. I'm just not valuable. And the other guy starts laughing at him. Like, who does that? Like, in, when people do that to me, don't worry, I'm not going to laugh at you. When you're like, I just stink at everything. I'm <laughs> 
And he's laughing at me. He's like, wait, are you laughing at me? I just told you that I'm horrible. He goes, yeah, I'm laughing. He goes, why are you laughing? He goes, because you do stink. You're horrible at it. But look what Jesus did anyway. Look what he did anyway. And the enemy wants you to feel the same. I'm horrible. I'm not good at this. And the truth is, you're not. You're a sinner. But Jesus was born anyway for you. And Jesus gives you hope. You know, there's one more use of that word, behold, in John's writings. It comes at the end of the book of Revelation. It represents the hope that we have. For many of you, you need to hear this this morning. You need to be reminded that this is the hope of Christmas. You'll see the word appear a few more times at the end of Revelation, chapter 21, when John writes this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and so did all their pain. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, stop, pay attention. This changes everything. Because of Jesus, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, all the pain you felt in your life. He'll take it away. There's no more death. The dragon cannot kill anymore. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things, it's gone. It's gone. It's passed away because of Jesus. And he who was seated on the throne said these beautiful words, Behold, I make all things new. I make everything new. I don't know where you're at this Christmas morning, but one of my fears is that we'll go home and we'll start adding our characters back to nativity, and we should, because they're there. They're in the Bible. And we'll have the child and the gifts. And because everything about our Christmas season often tells us to fake it, we'll take the dragon out of the nativity. And we'll go back to a comfy Hallmark scene. And we'll ignore the reality that the dragon's real. And until heaven comes, he's real. My prayer for you is that you would keep the dragon in your nativity. And I know that's not always pleasant Right? My wife didn't like it when I first started putting a dragon in our nativity, and I know that because I just had to go buy two more uh, this week. Um, but the dragon's real, and keep them in the nativity scene. Why? Because with the dragon present, we're forced to behold. Behold the one who decided that Christmas would be a part of his plans before the creation of the world in the beginning. Behold the one who, even in the midst of all the tension and the pain and the suffering, decided he would come. Behold the one who, even when the dragon appeared, he conquered him, he overcame him, and he was born anyways. Behold the one who lived the life that you couldn't live for yourself, sinless and perfect. Behold the one who died for you on a cross. Behold the one whose blood covers you and makes you a conqueror. Behold the one who resurrected from the dead. Behold the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Behold the one who's preparing a place for you. Behold the one this Christmas who needs to remind you in the midst of whatever you're going through that he makes all things new. See, stop making Christmas God's plan B because Christmas was always his plan A. Let's pray.